Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm your host, Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted today to have as my guest the art historian and my friend, Yvonne Allette. Yvonne is Associate Professor of Art here at Vassar College, where she specializes in Renaissance and Baroque art, architecture, and urbanism. She's here to talk with us about her book, Architectural Invention in Renaissance Rome, Artists, Humanists, and the Planning of Raphael's Villa Madama, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Hello, Yvonne. Hello, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm really pleased that you're here. So this is a book about a major monument of Western architecture designed by a major artist in the Eternal City, Rome. But apart from specialists in Renaissance architecture or maybe papal history, not many people, I think, are familiar with it. I'm not alone in this, I'm guessing. So, no, you're not. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> so can you tell us, you know, in general terms about this building, how it was commissioned and what makes it exceptional as a Roman landmark, a sort of hidden Roman landmark? Yes, it's certainly not on the tourist trail. No, that may be a good thing. <laughs> for starters. It was conceived by Raphael for the Medici, Pope Leo X, and his cousin, Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, mm-hmm. on a stunning site in northwest Rome, on the Monte Mario, and the Medici Commission is complex for two reasons, basically. As a pleasant country house, that is a villa suburbana, just outside the city center, and also as a papal hospitium, or welcoming center to welcome foreign dignitaries who are about to make a ceremonial entry into Rome Mm -hmm. and the Vatican. And the villa was strategically sited right where all the roads come into Rome. Uh So right at that spot, you have to imagine diplomatic retinues from all over Europe, composed of kings, emperors, ambassadors, their retinues, hundreds of people and their horses, coming over the Alps, down through Italy, and needing a place to stop, rest, clean up, change clothes, water their horses, hear speeches before they regroup, and Uh then head down the hill Uh at the appropriate moment for their ceremonial entry into Rome and to the Vatican. So the villa was a kind of pastoral Vatican. Architecturally, it was supposed to be one of the first grand villas of the Renaissance, conceived on a colossal scale, completely unprecedented, Mm -hmm. intended to rival and surpass its ancient prototypes, like Hadrian's Villa in Tivoli, known from archaeological remains, or the evocative literary descriptions by Pliny and other writers. And so in response to that challenge, Raphael and his associates... And I have to clarify here that although I refer to Raphael, it was a collaborative project Uh involving a number of architects, notably Antonio de Sangallo the Younger, as well as humanists and patrons, as you know. So Raphael and his associates designed an ensemble integrating everything from buildings, landscape, roads, views, Uh waterworks, Uh and decorations into a giant, stunning, rich ensemble. And it was one of the most highly watched projects of the day. People like Baldessari Castiglione sent progress reports to Isabella d'Este, for example. So in this way, Bill Madonna became a kind of paradigm of the Roman Renaissance villa. But as you noted, it is much less well-known to us today, and that's for reasons of access. It was privately owned by a succession of papal, royal, noble families, went through the Medici, the Farnese, the Bourbons, the Hohenzollern, Uh mentioned just a few, and was then acquired by the Italian state as the representative seat of the foreign ministry Uh in 1937. Uh, Under Mussolini then. Yes, exactly. And it's been used ever since to welcome heads of state, functioning kind Uh of like the White House and Camp Uh David rolled into one. Uh So it's Uh been off view and difficult to access for so long that modern scholarship on it has been relatively scant. So it's been difficult for scholars to access as well as tourists then, yes? Even for scholars, yeah. Uh I mean, one can get in once, but it can be difficult to Uh get the repeated access you need for study. But I have to say that beyond 
all the academic reasons for its importance, the experience of this villa gets you at a really visceral level. Uh-huh. There's something about the stunning sight up near the crest of a hill where it's seemingly remote, but the first views of Rome open up at your feet, uh-huh. the Tiber Valley and the distant hills. Uh-huh. The grand scale of the building, the soaring vaults covered in crystalline stucco decoration, mm. the changing quality of the light, the burbling spring water, it all makes visitors a little weak in the knees oh, and uh-huh. has for uh-huh. hundreds of years. So yeah. it's why centuries of visitors have recorded their wonder at visiting there, yeah. even if we don't know it so well. So can you tell us then, you mentioned Hadrian's Villa, and the, the villa obviously is a type here. Can you talk about the villa as a building type? A villa can range, obviously, in scope from a single building to yeah. a whole complex, yeah. like this one was, or like Hadrian's Villa was, kind of on an imperial yeah. scale. It's typically building our complex outside a city that can comprise gardens, waterworks, and Raphael's Villa was intended to surpass all of these. And there have been plenty of writings on villa yeah, technology I was going to say, it spawns a literature, time. doesn't it? But what I think is interesting is that the villa has typically resisted narrow typologies. Uh And that's because the whole decorum of the villa is license. That is, Uh it's a place outside of the city Uh to accommodate a kind of freer existence than in town. So a Renaissance villa, even a papal one, was understood as a place to let one's hair down Uh a bit, literally and figuratively. So a place where you'd have a symposium, say? Absolutely, Uh, and I think they did. And so the style of the architecture, as well as the decoration, were supposed to reflect that license. Uh You see a lot of freedom of design and innovation in villa style and decoration, rather than adhering to strict types. And it's interesting, there are letters between an overseer for Villa Madama and one of the Medici patrons in which the overseer asks if they want biblical stories depicted. Uh-huh. And the patron says, nah, you know, we'll do that for what we're doing in the Vatican right now. Uh-huh. You know, let's do scenes from Ovid, uh-huh. for example. So here we have, we're dealing with a papal villa that's completely covered in pagan and secular decoration. This isn't a building that was actually completed. I mean, it was designed to be much more than it actually turned out to be, yes? So. Yeah, the fascinating thing about Raphael's villa is that it is a building in the real world although not the entire grand complex that he had envisioned. That I just found fascinating, because half of what you have here is a fantasy building. I mean, you have something that's here, you can see it, but on the other hand, you know, the plans for it were much larger, and they were changing, so... There were plans of a building that wasn't built that were superseded with plans of a building that wasn't entirely built, yes? Uh, yes, the project was interrupted when Raphael died unexpectedly yeah, uh-huh. early, as well as the death of Pope Leo, the yeah. sack of Rome, and a few yeah, other yes. obstacles. Yeah. And so what was constructed was literally half of the building itself, uh-huh. the summer quarters, yeah. and kind of a fraction of the gardens, some of the roads. But what's interesting is that the plans of the unfinished villa were surprisingly well-known to all uh-huh. of their contemporaries. Oh, that is interesting. And so for centuries, visitors have made pilgrimages to the site to see Raphael's unfinished masterwork, uh-huh. like masterwork. It became a symbol, especially because it was his yeah. late great Well, that's ensemble. just it. So this is absolutely fascinating that you have a building that is a building, but it's also the idea of a building, right, that we're talking about. You know, it exists in the real world, but it exists as a symbol, as an idea in a way. At some level, the building is especially important because it wasn't fully realized uh-huh, because uh-huh. it was that idea, and yeah. everybody went to put their own sort of spin on it. Palladio went, Serlio went, Goethe wrote and sketched there, Hubert Robert painted there, yeah. Le Corbusier admired it. So it became yeah. kind of like a modern ruin that's danced in the minds of architects, urban planners from the Renaissance down to the present, and they've been inspired to emulate it 
or to complete it in virtual restorations. Uh, oh, oh, so it's been kind of oh. like a Roman Renaissance Pergamum or uh, Palestrina. Oh, oh, interesting. So, you know, we have a building on campus that's like this now, right, that we hear about all the time. It's, it's in the planning stages. Will it ever get out of the planning stages? I don't know. It's, it's jocularly called the Institute, I-N-N Institute, because it's supposed to be possibly when we find an academic use for it, an institute for liberal arts, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, we're talking about a hotel on campus. Well, in the Renaissance, what's interesting is the idea of a building went well beyond its bricks and mortar uh-huh. realization yeah. also, however partial, yeah. because the villa, more than just a building type, was a kind of cultural ideal, mm-hmm. and that ideal could encompass text as well as a mortar uh-huh. and stone building. Yeah. And there's a rich literary tradition associated with villas, arguably uh-huh. more than uh-huh. any other building yeah. type. So the idea of a villa was frequently expressed by poetry and prose, which could frame its reception. And to Renaissance contemporaries, the dialectic of the literature and the architecture itself really constituted the essence Uh, of uh. the building. Well, to the imagination, what's more pleasurable than imagining your dream house and sort of building it out, planning it, even if it never gets built? So we're talking about a process here in a way. I mean, apart from the fact that you you have this shift between what's built and what isn't built. The building that did occur the nucleus of it, took place from about 1517 to the early 30s. So this is a process about the buildings coming into being. Absolutely. I I was en route to writing a monograph about the villa as Uh an idea and as it actually did come to be when my analysis of descriptions of the villa began expanding and kind of Uh leading in new directions. And Raphael famously wrote a prose letter describing the villa in the vernacular to his patron. It survives in draft form. It kind of bodily walks the patron through the villa, giving Mm -hmm. a very specific and concrete sense of the ground plans. And there are also several little-known poems by humanists in the papal curia praising Mm -hmm. the villa, some in great detail. And obviously, they too were written while it was still in the architect's drawing board and with the ground plans still in flux. So I was curious about the function of these writings. Why such an outpouring of writing about a construction site, describing it as if finished down to every detail? And so I found out that analyzing these proleptic descriptions together with the architectural plans and other evidence allowed glimpses into the villa's design process uh-huh. uh, at various points and into the typically elusive processes of ideation. That is, the ways that ideas could be translated into spatial and visual forms uh-huh. like a building yeah. or decorations. And we know that these Renaissance humanists served as advisors, as propagandists, but we don't really know how exactly they worked with artists and especially with architects. And we know little about how these conceptual ideas got proposed, developed, Uh translated into form, or negotiated by this cohort of patrons, artists, and humanists. So that was what really got me curious in this study. So as for the notion of coming into being, I also became convinced that the design process was more than a means to an end. That is, the descriptions of the villa by poets and Raphael himself celebrated the bringing into existence of the villa as an important narrative in its own right Uh for philosophical as well as practical reasons. So the book deals with processes of ideation and the coming to be Uh rather than the final project. Yeah, so in modern terms, it's what a building program would do in a way. You know, the architects would send out questionnaires, that kind of thing, gather information, and then come up with some kind of narrative about what the building was supposed to do. But this is, but we don't, you know, we don't write poetry now, do we, (laughs) to to help us understand what we want the building to be. 
Well, the agency becomes a lot less directional in this narrative. Yeah, uh-huh. Really interesting, absolutely fascinating. So in terms of a patron, can you tell us something about Pope Leo? I mean, is this his idea to begin with? Was it Raphael went to him, or do we know? Uh, well, we don't know, but presumably yeah. the idea started with him. Yeah. I can well, imagine. he was paying for it. The payment is also a little fuzzy, how yes. much it came okay, out okay. of the papacy and okay. how much of it came, came from the Medici, the Medici family. Yeah. It stayed in the Medici family after the oh, Medici yeah. pontificate, yeah. so presumably theirs, but yeah. I, you know, I, I believe a few papal funds were used as well, given its function. But Pope Leo in, ostensibly initiated it. He, of course, was the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, the yeah. towering ruler of Renaissance Florence, and so Leo had a sophisticated education under Poliziano. Mm-hmm. And even among the storied Medici family, he was famously erudite. He joked uh-huh. around in Latin. Yeah, with, he was uh, a humanist his, himself. Yeah, he really yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was an extra extravagantly generous and sophisticated Uh patron Uh of poets in Renaissance Rome, almost uh, to the extent that it was the butt of jokes. But if Leo, as the Pope, is the titular patron of the villa, his cousin, Cardinal Giulio, was really the villa's primary patron. Uh And this, I think, was in part a maneuver to straddle the line between what was family property and what was papal. But beyond that, Giulio was Leo's right-hand person. Mm -hmm. He was the vice-chancellor of the church, which is a position akin to secretary of state. And so a diplomatic welcoming center was very solidly part of his job Mm -hmm. description. And so in building and decorating the villa, it became Giulio's job to make sure that the villa stayed on message with curial communiques from the Vatican as well. And Giulio was also an unusually engaged and astute patron of architecture. And Leo and Giulio had actually grown up together in Uh Laurentian Florence Uh and had learned how to be patrons Uh from their illustrious relatives. And they were also raised with Michelangelo, Uh uh, whom the family took in, and Giulio with architects in the Sangallo family. So they had an Uh extraordinary respect for and, and facility for dealing with artists and for patronage, and they had learned, absorbed ways of using media from poetry and Uh parade floats to architecture Uh to communicate Uh their political and dynastic messages. And this wouldn't have been their first villa. Uh, Lorenzo died while he was still working on Poggio Acaiano in Uh Florence, uh, and the two of them were busy finishing it up at the same time they were doing their own. So, it's cont- yeah, so they, they took were a lot of yeah, so, they yeah. were contemporary. They took a lot of Florentine, Medici, dynastic, and ideological imagery, took it to Rome, and, and inflected yeah. it yeah. for yeah. papal Rome. So yeah. you see a lot of back and forth between yeah. Roman and yeah. Florentine Medici. And then Raphael. We don't usually think of Raphael as an architect. We all think of him, of course, as a painter. In fact, he was the foremost architect in Renaissance Rome at a time when Renaissance uh, Rome was, of course, a cosmopolitan cultural yeah. capital. Well, that's of saying Europe. something with Sangallo and some... Bramante came yeah. just before Raphael. Yeah, okay, when he okay. died, Raphael took over as uh-huh. the chief architect of St. Peter's. Oh, I see. Only okay. the second yeah. person to hold that, yeah. which was the epicenter of Italian architecture uh-huh. yeah. and discourse. And when Raphael died, his epitaph in his tomb in the Pantheon, which was written by Pietro Bembo, talks about uh-huh. him as an architect. Oh, uh-huh. and, uh, oh interesting. And, uh, a painter. So that's how he was known. He was effectively Rome's foremost visual culture impresario, if you will. So he was renowned for his ability to design in many, many media, from architecture, painting, to urban design, and also landscape and prints. And he wasn't unique as a painter-architect at the time. I mean, that was a practice that had been known since Giotto, who designed the Bell Tower in Florence, and, you know, obviously Bramante, Peruzzi, his 
but very few designed for as many media as Raphael did. Uh. And his wide-ranging work is less well-known today for a variety of reasons, partly Vizzari's rhetorical pigeonholing yeah, okay, him, yeah. him as the Prince of Painters. Yeah. We're all familiar with Vizzari's central Italian bias yeah, okay, and his yeah. emphasis on Tuscan's uh, Roman disegno. Uh -huh. For him, his dear friend Michelangelo exemplifies that, and yeah. so he casts Michelangelo as the all-around artist. He gets yeah, the poem okay, for yeah, painting, yeah, sculpture, yeah, and architecture, yeah. and in this rhetorical structure, Raphael, who was not from yeah, yeah, Tuscany, yeah. gets relegated to being yeah, the prince of painters, painters so yeah. kind of the way out for oh, painting. Uh, so, And he deliberately too. suppresses yeah. many of Raphael's hmm. projects, which is interesting because Vasari would go ahead to emulate Raphael's management of a large multimedia workshop, so uh -huh. he clearly knew plenty uh -huh. about it. Also, for various reasons, relatively few architectural drawings survive for Raphael's projects, mm -hmm. many of which have been modified uh -huh. or altered. His work at St. Peter's doesn't survive because mm -hmm. Michelangelo, who later held the post, and who was Raphael's personal enemy, professional yeah. nemesis yeah. Made, yeah. Yeah, yeah. made sure that uh, no trace of what Raphael <laughs> had built yeah. design remained. And the only publication Raphael as architect is in Italian. Uh -huh. So for a variety of reasons, he's less well known, mm. but I hope the one outcome of my work and that of many others as we head into the celebrations of uh -huh. his, the quincentenary of his death in 2020 will be increasing recognition uh -huh. of him as an architect. That he was yeah. an architect and a, dis a brilliant designer of many media. Yeah. So can you then talk about the cultural Renaissance Rome in terms of humanism? I mean, Leo is a humanist pope, and he's sponsoring poets and artists of uh, various kinds. And artists seem to be able to cross from one medium into another. They, they seem to be facile on many media. Our last discussion was with Ariel Saber, um, Renaissance Italian linguists who were also mathematicians that didn't really hardly make a distinction between the two. So can you talk about humanism and how it influences the villa here? I thought a lot about the cultural and the social context uh -huh. in which humanists mixed with artists and their patrons yeah. in, in Renaissance Rome. As you know, the Vatican's response to all of the contemporary challenges from Martin Luther and the Ottoman Turks yeah. and European superpowers was to articulate its diplomatic strategy in using the persuasive power of Neo-Latin, yeah. uh, which was the lingua franca of international diplomacy. So humanists were brought in to basically create the, the papal Neo-Latin communications campaign. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they were a cosmopolitan cohort that came from all over the Italian peninsula and beyond. And they socialized in circles of these erudite, sharp-tongued mm -hmm. scholars and poets, letterati of Latin and Greek. And they worked and socialized together in very fluid groupings. They mm -hmm. were really sodalities at this point, not yet formal academies, yeah. that also include artists and patrons. Mm -hmm. And they worked together, collaborated on philological projects, and spurred by the physical remains of Rome around them, a lot of archaeological and topographical studies. Mm -hmm. So they tended to mix business and pleasure uh -huh. uh, in outings, uh, and as mm -hmm. we were talking about, banquets or yeah. convivia that they held. Uh -huh. uh, many of them had villas in Rome, so yeah. they held these banquets in there their villa gardens, which were the sites of legendary feasts, mm -hmm. choreographed poetry contests, and some of the feasts, they literally decked walls with their poetry. They pasted it on walls, on trees. Uh. They recited it to each other. Uh -huh. So poetry became their mode of expression. They used it for a remarkable range of purposes, professional, social, creative, too. Uh, interesting. So some of these humanists were wordsmiths, poets, and the poet that you especially write about is Sperulo. So can you talk about Francesco Sperulo and his role in the project and about the literary part of the project? Yes, um, Francesco Sperulo is a fairly... A relatively little-known humanist yeah. wrote a long Neo-Latin poem uh, describing 
the Medici Villa with the prose dedication to Cardinal Giulio, uh -huh. saying that he had just taken a walk through the villa's construction site and he was so inspired by this locus aminus that he wanted to engage in building the villa, which he had just done in verse with the help of the muses. And of course, this is a poetic topos, yeah. but I was curious, why dedicate 407 lines of hexameter to a construction site? Uh -huh. And other more celebrated poets did the same at this early stage too, although not at quite such length, yeah. including Antonio Tebaldeo, Marco Geraldo Vida, who's dubbed the Christian Virgil. But Sparulos was exceptionally specific. And after his uh, brief prose dedication, he sets the whole poem in the mouth of Father Tiber, uh -huh. which of course was a Virgilian borrowing, yeah, Tiber is yeah, a prophet who yeah, can see, yeah, foresee the history of Rome. Yeah. And in Sperulo's poem, Father Tiber claims to be running sculpture and spoils upriver to the villa, directing the work, envisioning the finished villa from the mural cycles that Raphael was supposed to paint mm -hmm. to the installation of specific sculptures. So why compose this kind of poetry? The most obvious purpose would be to advertise the, the goals of the patron and frame the reception mm -hmm. of the building in advance. But more importantly, I think the basic function of these proleptic poems by Sperlo and the others was to serve as conceptual proposals for the architecture mm -hmm. and the decoration. It was efficacious poetry written for a very specific purpose. The poem exhorts the patron, Cardinal Giulio, and also Raphael to enact the poet's own ideas. And so at the same time, the poet is celebrating the patron, celebrating the villa and panegyric. He's offering ideas mm -hmm. to the patrons and artists uh -huh. in a mode that I've called hortatory ecclesis. Uh -huh. So his poem shows us how Neo-Latin could be used as a utilitarian tool uh -huh. uh, of architectural design. Words here were tools, not just for the presentation mm -hmm. or the dissemination of plans, but actually for proposing ideas and mm -hmm. working them out. And so I think the agency of the wordsmiths becomes really noteworthy uh -huh. in this context. This dialectic of architecture and literature isn't theoretical or conceptual, it's a mode of thinking. It's uh -huh. a, an actual working discourse. And of course, to us, composing poetry would seem a long way to go to draft a working proposal. But as you're noting, Renaissance poetry served a really crucial social and communicative function. Uh -huh. And in this case, poets used what to them were familiar forms, diction, metaphors, and models that would be completely clearly understood by all of their literate listeners. Mm -hmm. And so the coding that we have to uncover now in a poem like Sprulo's was readily apparent to the target audience. Uh -huh. And all of his literary quotations from ancient literature, his tags about Medici imagery or challenges to Raphael were wrapped in Virgilian diction, a structure that he borrowed from the Silver Age poet Statius, and to the Renaissance, that constituted clear communication uh -huh. with kind of the required authority and uh -huh. scholarly apparatus. So I think these poets were using ekphrasis, a kind of ekphrastic completion, if you will, uh, as a literary mindset that they harnessed as uh, interesting, an yeah. architectural design tool. Because ordinarily, as a rhetorical device, it's used to express ideas, but not ex express a program, particularly. So, I mean, ekphrasis is a, a literary description of a visual work. Well, there are many, many types of ekphrasis. Yeah. But what I discovered was there was no direct ancient model for this kind of poetry. But the description of a real but an unbuilt place mm -hmm. is an inventive assemblage of a lot of different literary and yeah. rhetorical genres. Uh -huh. yeah. So they drew from epic poetry and yeah. panegyric Classical and notional, yeah. notional yeah. ekphrasis yeah. and the kind of 
pulled it all together into this yeah. new subgenre. So this becomes part of the collaborative effort to design and build the structure. Raphael's part of this, uh, Sangalo's part of this. And then the question comes up, what does it mean to collaborate here? I mean, is Pope Leo basically calling all the shots and people are presenting ideas to him, or is there a tug and pull between the entities? Are people actually cooperating, or is this just rivalry, basically? I think some of all of the above. Yeah. We know that Raphael, in particular, was unusually collaborative, and uh-huh. it was a necessity yeah. for uh-huh. him, given yeah. the staggering array of colossal yeah. projects he had to direct simultaneously. Yeah. Art itself is a workshop sort of endeavor, isn't it, in this period? Well, it can be. Different uh-huh. artists responded to the challenges of their colossal commissions and many of them in very different ways. So the way, for example, Raphael and Michelangelo responded to some of the same patrons and the same challenges were diametrically Uh opposite. Uh So there is no one way to say artists ran a workshop. But Raphael in particular had an unusual reputation for attracting the most talented artists, Mm -hmm. fostering them and giving them a fair amount of creative license uh, on their own. And he also had the unusual reputation for accommodating constructive criticism and his ability to work with a variety of different specialists, humanists, patrons, to map ideas across representational media, across space and time, were obviously part of what fueled his meteoric Mm -hmm. rise to be this impresario. But his working process varied by project, by collaborator, and at the Medici Villa, which was his one opportunity to design a freestanding building in its landscape from the start, unlike, say, St. Peter's, was fostered a very different mode of working Uh than, say, the the fabric of St. Peter's. So what I think happened at Villa Madama was the poet Sprullo, for example, distilled a kind of large dose of Medici ideology into a general program for sculptures, spoils, Mm -hmm. and mural paintings, layering the family history onto Rome. And I think his idea was to devise some overarching conceptual decorative functional Uh constructs at a very early stage without working them out in specific detail. So Sparullo's poem furnishes conceptual proposals that would evolve considerably during the execution of the villa. The most successful ones were for sculptural set pieces, mm-hmm, yeah. and the least successful ones were for painting, painting which is murals, typically yeah, murals, yeah. which are typically the last, last thing to be yeah. worked out in an ensemble. Yeah. But I think that in terms of collaboration, in addition to these carefully crafted poetic proposals, of course, there were much more informal exchanges yeah. as well. We can imagine roomfuls of architects, humanists, and occasionally patrons standing over the plans. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. You see literary sources jotted onto uh-huh. the margins oh. of architectural plans oh. that suggest that exact yeah, scenario. Yeah. And there were also impromptu corridor chats in the Vatican. Uh-huh. We have a, a letter by Pietro Bembo saying that Raphael has just poked his head in asking for more scenes to oh. paint in, uh, in one area. So you get this sense <laughs> so of funny. everybody yeah. Yeah. under one roof. Yeah, more people in the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And this kind of dialogic environment to me, illustrates the importance of human advisors, but Uh also why that term can be a bit of a misnomer, because it suggests a one-way flow of advice. Uh, And rather, what I've been seeing is that they generated concept and design in an iterative process, in ongoing dialogue with each other. So it's not clear then in the end that Raphael's finally calling the shots and Sparullo is just getting him to agree. I mean, they are rivals. You get a sense of that, don't you? Absolutely. Collaboration wasn't necessarily congenial. And in part, this was a function of the general environment. Patronage in Rome was a zero-sum game. And there was fierce oh, yeah, competition uh-huh, yeah. for jobs among yeah, humanists uh-huh. and 
Raphael didn't have that problem. He had the opposite problem, which was how to do all the work on his plate at yeah. once. Mm -hmm. But everyone is a critic, if not a backstabber. Yeah. And even Raphael, despite his reputation, had to have sharp elbows to uh -huh. silence the snipers yeah. uh -huh. and, and keep control yeah. of his projects to get his ideas yeah. built. And this intense competition wasn't only a fact of life among these high-powered professionals. I think the, the patrons fostered it. For example, I think there may well have been a convivium planned that was the occasion for reciting all of these descriptions of Villa and Madonna uh -huh. by the poets and even yeah. by Raphael himself. Because the practice of coordinating poems describing a building as the centerpiece of a convivium was familiar in Rome. And these kinds of humanist gatherings could be the occasion for poetic correspondence. And there is internal evidence in uh -huh. these works that they seem to respond to each other. So you can visualize Sprullo and Raphael performing these works as a kind of intertextual uh -huh. discourse, perhaps even at the muddy site of the villa's construction site, uh, with the foundations rising. And so if Raphael did recite his letter in an event at the villa, then his epistolary walkthrough of the villa wasn't just a literary metaphor, mm -hmm. but a kind of schematic for embodied experience or a, a script yeah. for performing the plans. So it seems that Renaissance artists and humanists and patrons here were reviving ancient symposium practice and harnessing it for productive as well as social purposes, yeah. literally put everybody together and let them criticize each other's ideas. Yeah. So the competition of word and image here wasn't just figurative, there was actually a sharp elbowed battle uh, over uh -huh. whose ideas would go, go forward, forward for this yeah. project yeah. and who would control invention the architect yeah. with ground plans or the poet claiming yeah. to, oh, to build interesting. it first. I mean, the same thing does happen in architecture large projects today where you have the World Trade Center project where Nick Adams described the whole process as a lot of star architects with sharp elbows, basically sumo wrestlers. I think he described them, you know, tr throwing their weight around the ring. Leapskin was, of course, in there. But it, it was an SOM project. It wasn't just Leapskin. Well, yeah. it was the Renaissance that gave us the whole concept of the heroic, heroic architect. Yeah, yeah. You okay, know, yes, the architect yeah, that's is true. Author, yeah, yeah. You know, right at the moment when yeah. our architecture was shutting their image yeah, as sure. kind of manual yeah. practice. Yeah. And Marvin Trachtenberg has said that it was Alberti who not only invented the notion of the architect as author, but he notes the affinity of Albertian thought and yeah. modern architectural megalomania. Yeah. So you mentioned there are artifacts and parts of Roman buildings and Roman architecture and Roman sculpture that are incorporated into the villa. It isn't customarily assumed that someone building a building is going to go look for pieces of old buildings to stick in the, the building that's being built. And of course, the Renaissance is supposed to be about the assimilation or appropriation or rediscovery of classical Roman classical culture, isn't it? So that, that is literally going on here, though. There are marbles and monuments that are being dug up and then reused, essentially. And that's a major part of the building, yes? Absolutely. Yeah. It, was, it was part of the archaeological, the antiquarian uh -huh. uh, culture of, of Rome. And Everybody I'm talking about, the humanists, the artists, the patrons, were engaged together in a kind of collective enterprise to, as they termed it, revive the corpse of Rome. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, like Lazarus. Uh... It drew on Petrarch's notion of remembrare, to uh -huh, literally yeah. reassemble the, oh, the limbs uh -huh, yeah. of a body as a form of, of memory. And so figural sculptures came out of the ground, like mutilated bodies. The ruins of ancient buildings were understood as bodies. 
And Raphael in particular was associated with this image. He was fashioned in poetry as the Christ-like healer of Rome's broken body. And interestingly, in addition to the renovation of Rome's ancient remains, new construction after the antique was understood as a tool for reviving the city. So it wouldn't have been paradoxical in Renaissance terms that this ex novo villa, on a site that had no ancient remains, would be a brand new project outside the central city gave Raphael the fullest opportunity to restore the glory of ancient Rome. And there was actually a contemporary drawing of Christ raising Lazarus set in front of the unfinished Medici Villa, which I interpret to mean that the Medici Villa project was understood as Raphael's Lazarus. Uh, so uh. at one level, the entire building, even though it was new construction, was understood as a revival of antiquity. Uh -huh, yeah. At another level, as you say, in terms of specific artifacts, they were taking sculptures, fragments of antiquities, restoring them and using them to decorate the building or even incorporating them into the body of the building uh -huh. and designing the building around them. So in a sense, if the building has a political program, which it obviously does with the Medici and with the papacy, history is being made to serve this program through this collection of antiquities, isn't it? In some way, in some important way, seems to me anyway. And then possibly if sculpture is being used in mythology, you know, there are various ways this seems to be happening here. Yes, absolutely. The Medici had a large collection of sculptures, which have subsequently yeah. been dispersed. But even at the time they were building this, even the Medici popes didn't have everything they could want in terms of ancient uh -huh, sculpture. Yeah. So they had to take what they had and make a new story with it. So the humanists could recontextualize or allegorize spoils uh -huh, the same uh -huh. way they created stories in, in poetry. So basically what I think they were forging was a kind of program and using these spoils that became the impetus for architectural design. And that's a little bit backwards from what yeah. we normally think. We normally talk about the program for especially representational arts of yeah. painting uh, and sculpture, which are the medium most closely associated with the visual formulation yeah. of narratives. But the notion of a program for architecture is necessarily somewhat different. And so what I was finding is that for the Medici Villa, the planners were generating these very early stage frameworks that often had to do with the placement of sculptures. Uh -huh. And they would come up with ideas, ideological, philological, archaeological, that could be expressed in a variety of media, mm -hmm, you know, yeah. from sculptures to, to paintings. For example, the notion of the villa as Parnassus, an oh. idea that came yeah. to be quite common, especially yeah. later in the, the Renaissance. A simple one, but here they actually had nine figures of muses, or what could be restored as muses. Yeah. And it seems clear from the poetry they were challenging Raphael about where those would be installed uh -huh. at, yeah. at the villa. And I proposed that one particular kind of fishpond grotto was actually uh -huh. a, yeah. a very early museum. So a section of the villa, the entire villa, the surrounding countryside, could represent different concepts, uh -huh. you know, say Parnassus or uh, an ancestor gallery or the Temple yeah, of Peace, yeah. for example. And the conceptual notions were all fairly straightforward, readily yeah. comprehensible to a Renaissance audience, but they could be layered. What's interesting is yeah. that important antiquities were often what provided the generative impulse. Yes, for the, so the, for the, the space would, itself. The yes. humanist would start with an antiquity yeah. and say, hey, Raphael, I can build a story around this. And then, yeah. you know, we have an example of that in a relief from the Temple of Venus Genetrix, yeah. which actually 
was clearly the impetus for yeah. an entire elevation that was designed in Raphael's yeah. lifetime, yeah. and then the decorations yeah. around that. Yeah. So you know, we normally think of a building being built and then decorated. Decorated with described. art later. You know, if you're lucky, you've got one percent of your budget you can spend on, on artwork later. Although you know, sometimes it's just what you have left over. You Absolutely, know? So, and here yeah. it's, it's completely the opposite. Yeah, we that's have the descriptions coming yeah. first, uh -huh. uh, and then yeah. some of the decorations driving the architectural elevations into which they would be uh -huh. set. Uh -huh. So then, the uses that these spaces would be put to, you know, whether they were eating spaces or performance spaces of some kind, or they were living spaces, did that function get folded into all this? If sculpture is determining what the space is about, is there some kind of performance possibly that's being conceived or regulated sometimes? I mean, usually with a program, you think what's going to happen in this space, and then, you know, and then you design around what's going to happen in the space. It's a bedroom, you know, you don't want too much light. If you, you know, if it's a place you eat, you do want light, at least on the, on the table, but this is a little different, isn't it? focus here was on the main representational space. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah. The villa, with its dual function, would be used both for informal gatherings and for uh, the uh, formal yeah. uh, welcoming of diplomatic mm. visitors. So these representational spaces were all designed for both formal and informal meetings mm, yeah. with high-level yeah, diplomats yeah, yeah. and friends of uh, the Medici Pope. So, for yeah. example, the area around the fish pond, which I think was designed to be a museum, yeah. would have, and Raphael stipulated that there would be dining pavilions yeah. at the end of it. So you can very much imagine that the artists, the humanists, and the patrons could walk along the water's edge by these life-size yeah, you know, like life statues of pieces. It looks like a pieces. big built-in swimming pool, although it's not used for swimming. It was used for fish pond. Yeah, fish but pond yeah. Absolutely. So they could walk by the, the water's edge next to these muses and literally bring to life like uh -huh. a tableau vivant, yes, uh -huh, a, yeah. a scene of Parnassus uh -huh, as uh -huh. Raphael had painted it uh -huh, in the Vatican. Uh -huh. So clearly they were thinking about this kind of usage yeah, function yeah, performance. Yeah. yeah, sculpture in this era, certainly in the Middle Ages, but I think into the Renaissance, has an unusual power. I'm thinking of the book, The Dream of a Moving Statue, almost a lifelike force that animates, certainly, whatever space you know is around it. So Absolutely, and... There was no canon yet. I mean, you yeah. know, we have to remember the excitement that most of the masterworks of antiquity that we think of were still coming out oh. of the ground. Mm. You know, the Laocoon, mm -hmm. Palo Belvedere have yeah. recently been yeah. discovered. Yeah. So these had incredible power. Uh. And to possess them, to restore them yeah. and make them complete and create yeah. these... Very Lazarus-like, actually, in some cases. You Absolutely. know, something that's been buried for a long time, being brought out into the light and reanimated, in a sense. And that's something Leonard Barkin has written uh. extensively on. Most building practices, architectural projects are drawn out, and modern projects included. And I'm thinking here of my having talked with Nick Adams on Gunnar Asplund's courthouse in Malmo, which uh, I think took... 40 years from beginning to end to build, and it was constant meetings, changes of plans. Uh, it was done over a series of town governments that had come in and out. Asplund changed his plans dramatically throughout, made in the end a beautiful building, and it was a building that was actually an addition to an earlier courthouse. And then Tobias Armborst, the architect we have in the department, has talked to me about his process, and it's all meetings and process. It's not just a matter of drawing and then putting a building up, but it's a matter of meeting with all kinds of constituents and patrons and uh, people involved that you need to get permits from or you need to get certain permissions from, and then you've got governmental agencies. And that's part of the process for Tobias. I mean, it's what makes a good building if you know how to do that uh, well. So c can you talk about the process? Yeah, your question goes to the heart of several, I think, important issues that 
I deal with in the book. Uh-huh. First, many building projects are drawn out processes, yes, that engage a lot of people. But of course, processes of building and the role of the architect has changed significantly between the Renaissance and now. And there have been a lot of different types of collective diachronic building processes, even in the early modern period. Marvin Trachtenberg's written about building processes in the medieval yeah. Renaissance period, right? building in time and out of time, mm-hmm. which have important implications for architectural practice. And the role of the architect has changed so dramatically. The development of architecture as a profession came about in the Renaissance. And as we talked about, it was the Renaissance that gave us that concept of... Yeah, you know, star architect. Yes, yeah, yeah. star architect. Although, obviously, recently we've begun to recognize different modes of architectural yeah, yeah, practice. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, like I say, Tavius and, yeah. and Nick are totally anti-star architect yeah. in their approaches. So, But yeah. practices then and now vary by architect and by yeah. project. Yeah. So not to suggest there was a norm. Yeah. Alberti, for example, famously gave instructions to one of his site architects in, at the Tempio of Mount Testiano saying that his instructions must be executed absolutely down to the letter and down to the measurement uh-huh. so as not to destroy all his beautiful harmony. Oh, okay, yeah. Or Michelangelo, similarly, by way or the highway wanted he wrote home saying I can't leave Rome because I have to make sure St. Peter's gets built yeah. as far as possible yeah, so uh-huh. nobody will, be, will yeah. be able to come along later and do what I did to the people before oh, me yeah, including okay, Raphael yeah. and destroy yeah. their work Raphael seemed to use a rather different mode and what was interesting there was that the process of invention was collective from the outset uh-huh. so even in the most initial phases of the project when the original patrons and architects were first planning the project The process was iterative and was dynamic, and it encompassed the ideas of this varied group of planners and different systems of knowledge, visual, verbal, spatial, and that continued throughout the course of designing and building and decorating. Uh And I think this multi-epistemic process, if you will, is what allowed for this kind of flexibility Uh in design and what enabled the evolution of form and meaning together in a kind of dialogue with each other. And finally, I think it's important to refine notions of artistic intentionality. Even when we understand paradigms of collective design, collective enterprise, historians often fall back on trying to create a timeline from surviving evidence. Talking about a ground plan is yeah. an initial idea of yeah. pensiero, yeah. and then tracing subsequent refinement. In a way, I think I try not to do that. This modus is especially problematic for the Renaissance when we're dealing with such a spotty cache of yeah. uh, surviving evidence. And from my study of the evidence, visual and verbal, I suggest that rather than approaching ground plans and documents as static or as decrees of intention that are fixed at a specific moment, whether at the outset or at any other time, that we should be thinking of a transformative model of planning Uh that allows for these collective processes Uh of of design, of imagination, of construction, of decoration, with evolved and conflicting Mm -hmm. ideas along the way. And so fundamentally, ideation emerges as a product of negotiation. Uh Uh Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Tobias would agree with you entirely. And, you know, interesting, absolutely fascinating. The question that comes to mind, have you invented something new here in the realm of scholarship on historic buildings? Because it does seem to me to be a very unusual reading of a building. It's historical for sure, but it's not your usual approach to reading a building. I've argued for a different paradigm of mm-hmm. architectural design. Yeah. 
that encompasses different forms of knowledge yeah. and one that transcends traditional notions of design mm -hmm. and execution. And I've also tried to demonstrate how architecture could embody discursive ideas, including philological, poetic yeah. Yeah. modes of uh -huh. thought. That's something that Alberto Perez Gomez has written about. He's long called for more attention to the poetic and metaphorical uh, yeah. character of architectural thinking and yeah. design, uh -huh. and especially at this very moment in the early 16th century. Interestingly, this moment is a hole from when no architectural treatises survive. Right? Mm -hmm. We have a hole between the Quattrocento treatises of Alberti, Filarete, Francesco di Giorgio, mm -hmm. and in the mid-16th century architectural treatises of Palladio and Serlio. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the 16th century, with the foundation of Roman Renaissance mm -hmm. architecture, architects like Bramante, Raphael, Peruzzi wrote very little, what little they wrote barely survives, yeah. and they were busy building. So we have this hole in Renaissance architectural theory, and we've had to look to the buildings themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's an especially important moment. At one level, the mutual dependence of architecture and humanism in this moment was a legacy of Alberti. And the collaborative design process that I've sketched out specifically illustrates how rich and multivalent meanings could be represented in architecture. Mm -hmm. And I think these case studies demonstrate that early 16th century architectural thinking encompassed a much broader epistemological scope yes. than what was later codified in the mid-16th century treatises. Yeah, yeah. And cultural also, not just epistemological. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a rich discourse that wasn't yeah. just based on architectural theory, but it was, it was a function of different patterns yeah, yeah. of knowledge yes, that yeah, were harnessed yeah. in the service of, of praxis. Yeah. So ultimately, I think these findings illustrate the connections between language and architectural design practice remain a fertile ground uh -huh. for exploration. Yes. Oh, great. So, and so does it take a polymathic art historian to be able to pull in all these different kinds of material and apply different kinds of expertise, literary, artistic? I mean, that seems to me the beauty of the book, that it's much wider ranging than your usual straight-up architectural history. We're working across both architectural and representational arts and then yeah. the visual arts and, uh, and yeah. texts is certainly what enabled uh, yeah. these findings. So it helps to be a Renaissance woman. But, you know, what I'm getting at is that the book seems to me to be a, a kind of a landmark in architectural scholarship. I mean, something to be looked at as a model when other people are looking. Well, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what I can say to that, okay. uh, yeah. except to say that I too chose my collaborators. Uh -huh. uh, uh -huh. And I should mention that I worked with Nicoletta Marcelli, who contributed to the book a new critical edition and English translation uh -huh. of Sperulo's poem, for which I did a gloss. Yeah. And so collaborating with her was deeply satisfying uh -huh. and productive. And we together poured over every line, almost every uh -huh. word in the poem. Yeah. She's a philologist and an expert in Neo Latin and vernacular literature, especially yeah. in medicine. So you have a translation. Uh, and the original of the whole poem in the book. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. So, yeah. It constitutes a long yeah. appendix. Yeah. Yeah. So together, I think, through this collaboration, we ended up in a place very different than either one of us would have yeah. individually. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, appropriately for the yeah. visual-verbal collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautifully produced book, I have to say, especially the illustrations. You know, it's incredibly well illustrated, and they're nicely done, all of them, uh, both the color and the, and the non-color illustrations. So, Thank you. That yeah. reflects a lot of collaboration. It does. From, I mean, <laughs> it does. A lot okay. of people. And so, you know, with that, can you tell us what you have on the drawing boards now? Uh, you know, are you going to follow your own footsteps on your next project? Uh, well, I'm still working on the monograph about Villa Madama, from yes. which this book sprung, uh -huh. uh, which will treat the villa as an intermedial complex oh, uh -huh. uh, of architecture, landscape, decoration, waterworks, yeah. urban planning. 
And I've also found a lot of new material on the restoration of the villa and the recreation of its gardens in the 20th century, uh -huh. especially in the interwar period, in tandem with the creation of the Forum Mussolini right next door, uh -huh. uh, one of the most important Roman urban initiatives in the fascist period, and the planners of it sought to recontextualize Raphael's villa. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I'm working on that now. Yeah. And I'm also currently finishing up a book on early modern stucco, once again working across representational media architecture. Uh -huh. Stucco is typically understood as a revival of ancient recipes and techniques by the Raphael School, who transformed modest lime and sand mixture into a chic new material uh -huh. that became a central element of European yeah. visual culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I unpack some of the myths associated with it, and I explore the subject in the context of the history of art, uh -huh. alchemy, yeah. natural uh -huh. philosophy. Uh -huh. So it's an interesting chapter yeah. in the entwined histories of art, and yeah. science, yeah. and philosophy. And you were telling me you make your own stucco at home, yes? You experiment with, with recipes. So. I've been trying to the extent that it is possible to recreate some recipes from uh -huh. Vitruvius through uh -huh. oh, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Alberti so, yeah. and Vasari, which makes me appreciate deeply the, the skill that was needed oh, uh, to round up the right uh -huh, ingredients uh, and come up with just the right properties for a given yeah. task. So, I'd like to thank you, Yvonne, for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about your book, Architectural Invention in Renaissance Rome, Artists, Humanists, and the Planning of Raphael's Villa Madama, published by Cambridge in 2017. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks for coming.